A great crowd. This is good. This is a good thing. How many enjoyed the crackers and cheese and cookies and so forth? Is that a do again? What do you think? Huh? I think so. Can we get a barbecue going? Sure. Sure, we can have a barbecue. So we do like ribs and one week and yeah, why not, right? Indeed. <laughs> I traveled over to uh, the seminary almost every day, four out of five days this week to, um, to take a class. As an alumni now, I get to uh, sit in on classes. I don't have to pay tuition anymore and I don't have to take tests or do papers or any of those kinds of things. And uh, at summer school over there now, they crammed a whole 15-week class into five days. So um, those poor guys, you know, that's really tough. But as I was sitting there in class the first day and the professor was going over the syllabus and all the books they had to read and papers they had to write and so forth, all this that had to be done, I was just sitting there thinking to myself, boy, am I glad that I have graduated. I am really glad that I no longer have to subject myself to examinations in that way. You know, very, very few people enjoy examinations, isn't that right? Seldom does somebody say, give me a test, I like to be tested. That's just not the way it is for most of us, but examinations are necessary. They are a means, not the only one, but they are a means of, of testing somebody's mastery of a certain body of material. They're a way to see whether they are competent in, in whatever area of study is being looked at. Well, God requires that the leaders in his church be examined. He has set up certain requirements for examination, certain qualifications that, that a candidate for leadership in the church of God has to go through. They have to be qualified in certain areas of their lives to, to assume that awesome responsibility of leadership within the church. And it's really not a set of qualifications that is subject to negotiation. It is not something that the church sets up. These are not, these are not qualifications that any one individual church came up with. These are God's qualifications. And the point of that is, is because they are God's qualifications, they are not subject to negotiation. They, they cannot be changed. They cannot be softened, nor, beloved, can they be added to. They cannot be made higher than God makes them. We dare not make them lower, but we dare not make them higher either. Because after all, Whose church is this? That's right. This is God's church. That's what this whole series is about. This is God's church, and it needs to be done in God's way according to God's word. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I know it says selected scriptures, and that's only because I had to give Kelly a title early in the week, and I wasn't exactly sure where I was going to, where I was going to fully land. But we are going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3 for this week and next week. And as we work through the first part of chapter 3, really the first seven verses of chapter 3 over the next two weeks, we are going to notice seven non-negotiable areas of examination. Seven non-negotiable areas of examination that all elders must pass 
in order to be qualified for the high and holy calling of leadership in the church of God. Okay? Seven areas of examination. We're not going to get to them all tonight, but we will begin tonight and we will finish next week. Notice how Paul begins here in chapter 3, the, really the first clause. He said, it is a trustworthy statement. This is a form of citation that the Apostle Paul uses in the pastoral epistles. It actually appears in the pastoral epistles five times. And it always points out something of common consensus, uh, an issue with regard to doctrine that is critical, that is vital to the church of God, that everybody in the church agrees to. The idea is trustworthy or reliable or, or faithful. It is a commonly known confession, if I can say it that way. For example, look in chapter 1 and verse 15, where Paul says there, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It is a faithful, reliable statement. Christ Jesus came into the world. What purpose? To save sinners. Over here in chapter 3 and verse 1, we see the second one. It is a trustworthy statement. And then it's, he's going to be, go on and give us what that statement is. It says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. It's another trustworthy statement. Chapter 4 and verse 9, he gives us another one. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. What is the trustworthy statement? Well, you have to go above this time to find it, and it's, and it's here in verse 8. Bodily discipline is of only little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The trustworthy statement is that going to L.A. Fitness three times a week is only of little value. But disciplining yourself for godliness is of immense value. Yet, for some, they spend more time at L.A. Fitness than they spend in the Word of God, don't they? Trying to reverse the effects of gravity and sin in their life. <laughs> and we know that gravity always wins, doesn't it? Right? They say you have a furniture build when you get older, Greg. It means your chest is in your drawers. I'm not implying anything, my brother. Just, it's a commonly accepted statement. No. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, just as we trace this idea of, of trustworthy statements. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we died with him, we will live with him, the point Paul's making. is a trustworthy statement that for the believer dying with Christ, he will live with him eternally. And then finally, over in Titus chapter 3, the last of them, in verse 8, it is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want to speak to you confidently. And the trustworthy statement really begins here in, in verse 6. It says, Through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The point is that we are justified through the grace of Christ, therefore we have the hope of eternal life. That is a trustworthy statement, the Apostle says. 
So let's go back to First Timothy chapter three and now begin to unpack this trustworthy statement given to the church to guide it through all the ages. There's a trustworthy statement, First Timothy three, verse one. If any man aspires to the office of overseer. If any man aspires to the office, who can be an overseer? A man. It just starts as simple as that, doesn't it? Who can be an overseer? You have to be a man. It just, it just begins that simple. You have to be a man. But notice it goes beyond that. Do you see what it says? If any man, if any man aspires, any man can be an overseer in the church of God, provided they meet these qualifications. That is an exciting prospect for the men of the church. No longer is leadership in the church something that comes to you by your birth, such as in the Old Testament, right? You had to come from the line of whom? You had to be a Levite. That was something that was determined by birth. You had no choice. You couldn't change your lineage. So it is no longer restricted by birth. It is no longer restricted by health. In the Old Testament, there are regulations concerning who can be in leadership, aren't there? And if, if there were certain physical defects, they were excluded from leadership. Not so anymore. It's not, it's not based on education. It's not based on your age. It's not based on your class. It's not based on your social position. If any man aspires to the office of leadership or oversight in the church, it is available to him. That is an encouraging prospect. I can say to my son, son, if you meet these qualifications someday, you can be an elder in God's church. It's something you can encourage your sons with, men, and it's something that can and should encourage you. It is available. It is open to you, provided you meet the qualifications. It is not limited to successful businessmen. It's not limited to people with academic pedigrees. It is not limited to people who are community leaders. If any man aspires to the office, Regardless of your outside vocation, it doesn't matter what you do. If you aspire and you're qualified, it is open to you. Now, as we begin to look at these qualifications, they are character qualifications. We are going to look at a series this week and next of character qualifications. It's all about the man. What kind of a man can be in oversight of the church of God? With only one exception. It is completely character-oriented. The only one exception is in verse 2, where it talks about teaching, and we'll deal with that tonight. So other than the ability to teach, which we will talk about when we get there, beyond that, it is all character-related. And in fact, uh, a little bit later on in the passage, verses 8 through 13, it talks about deacons, and we will get there, and we will talk about deacons too. And there's our all character questions, all character qualities. And the only difference that separates the two of them within this text is the ability to teach. It's a teaching gift. But beyond that, it is all about character. All about character. If any man aspires to the office of overseer. Now, the word aspires. You've got to want it. That's what Paul's saying. You have to want to be an overseer in the church of God. It's not a position into which your arm should be twisted until you say, okay, I'll do it. 
It's not something that you should have to be talked into. We shouldn't have to convince you of it. It is has what it has to do with what's inside your heart. Has God placed within you a desire, a desire to give leadership in the church of God? I mean, the qualifications, as we're going to see in the next two weeks, are very, very high. And the workload is tremendous. It is stressful. It is fatiguing. It is unre unrelenting in terms of its pressure upon you. It is not for cowards. Oversight of the church of God is not a position for cowards. It is not a position for slackers. But if God has put within your heart a desire to do this, then it is something that, that nothing will stand in your way about doing it. Many people call this the call. Have you heard that before? Have you heard that terminology? You have to have the call, right? They talk about that normally with, quote, pastors, right? When they're examining a pastor as part of his ordination exam, part of that examination has to do with his call to ministry, right? We want to know about your call to ministry. What in the world are they talking about? What they're really talking about is 1 Timothy 3, chapter 1. Are you aspiring to this office of oversight? Do you meet the qualifications? And is it something that God has put in your heart, this intense desire to do this particular task? Do you have the call? Do you aspire to the office of overseer? Now, just take a look at that. The office of overseer. We learn a lot about what is involved merely from the terminology that is used. It is episcope. It's, it's translated bishop sometimes. We went over this two weeks ago, three weeks ago, whatever it was. But it's the idea of oversight or overseer. And that tells us a lot about what's involved. A leader in God's church, an elder in God's church, is in a position of oversight. It is an oversight position that they inspire to. And if any man aspires to the office of oversight in the church of God. What does it say? It's a fine work that he desires to do. It is a fine work. It is an honorable thing to do. It is a good and proper desire that God puts in a person's heart. If it's done correctly, it is a lot of work. But it is a good an honorable thing to do. It is a fine thing to do. You know, historically, leaders in the church have been men of great respect in the communities. Isn't that true? I mean, that's always the way it, it was. The problem is that I think we're still reaping the bitter harvest of the 1960s and what flowed out of that rebellious period of time when when we are so anti-authoritarian in our culture that we have no respect, we are a rebellious nation. And so there is no respect or honor given to the leaders in God's church anymore, or certainly not like there once was. But historically, it has been a position of great honor. Great honor. It is a fine work, the apostle says, that a man would do or would desire to do. It's also interesting, beloved, that in the history of the church... The persecution comes first to whom? To the leadership. It comes to the leadership. In fact, go with me to 2 Timothy and be reminded of this. Paul's writing from prison in Rome in 2 Timothy. And he's writing to encourage Timothy. 
In verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. The call to leadership historically within the church and presently within the worldwide church outside the bubble that we call the U.S. of A is a call to persecution in most cases. Leadership brings persecution. It is hard work. It is sleepless nights. It is pressure upon the mind and the soul as you consider the problems of people and you take them on your heart before God. You labor in among the scriptures to teach the scriptures and amongst God's people. And, and beloved, believe me, the sheep do bite sometimes. And you're signing yourself up historically for persecution. The first ones to be taken out are the leadership of the church. There's a lot of, quote, negatives involved in it. So it's not for the faint of heart. It's not, as I said, for the slacker. It's not for the coward. Verse 1, but if any man, what? Aspires, desires, has the call of God upon them. For this office, it is a fine work, a fine work that he desires to do. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. An overseer then must be above reproach. It's a small Greek verb here, day. It means, well, it's translated here, must, and it, and it means necessary or compulsory. It is not a negotiable verb. It is used many times of of something that God has established as, as, and it must occur according to his plan. Comes to mind immediately to me in John chapter 4 in verse 1, where it says that Jesus, when it comes to the time to go to Samaria, right, he must go to Galilee through Samaria. God had divinely ordained for Christ to go through Samaria because he had a certain appointment with a certain woman at a certain well on a particular day. This verb, day, appears here in verse Two, it also appears down in verse 7. Do you see it? And he must have something there. He must have a good reputation. And it appears also down in verse 11. It, it rolls through this whole passage. It controls the passage. The point is that these qualifications are must-have qualifications, non-negotiable qualifications. These are not helpful suggestions for the church of God. These are not recommendations by the Apostle Paul to the church leadership. These are divine mandates, divine mandates. Look at verse 14 in this chapter. Be reminded of this. Paul says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. All that goes through before and certainly through this book is written by Paul to Timothy, things that he would have told him in person if he could have been there. But he says, Timothy, I'm not sure I'm going to make it in time, so let me write it out for you. You need to choose leadership in the church, Timothy. And these are the qualifications for its leadership. 
Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. Literally, not to be laid hold of. The idea is that there is no handles or hooks in a man's life. Nothing for sin to really hang on to. It is a general requirement that is sort of an umbrella that over that stretches over the whole section here. Paul is going to go on and he's going to define these, what it means to be above reproach, but it is a general requirement that he begins with. It doesn't, necess- it doesn't mean perfection. It's not an issue of perfection. When it says he must be above reproach, it's not talking about a man being perfect. What he's talking about is that there are no glaring weaknesses in a man's life. There are no blatant contradictions between what comes out of his mouth and the way he performs at home or at work or in the church or so forth. He has to be a model of what it means to follow Christ. That's what it means to be above reproach. Look at 1 Corinthians just for a moment. Chapter 11 and verse 1. And I think this helps define what the apostle is talking about here. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of whom? Christ. What is Paul saying there? He's saying, I'm following Christ, and to the extent that I'm following Christ, you come along and you can follow me. You can follow me. You can pattern your life after my life to the extent that my life is patterned after Christ. An overseer then must be above reproach. He must lead a life that can be a pattern for the church. The church should be able to look at one of its elders, one of its overseers, and they should be able to say to someone who is new in the faith, what does it mean to walk the Christian life? What does it mean to be mature in the Christian life? Take a look at so-and-so. Pattern your life after them to the extent that they're following Christ. They are not, they are not perfect but they are moving in the direction of following Christ. There are no blatant contradictions about them. You want to know what it means to husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church? Look at the elders of the church, the Apostle Paul would say. See how they love their wives. That's how you should love your wife. Do you want to know how you should operate within your family? Young dad, you want to know how to bring up children? Look at the elders of the church and pattern your life after them. Because they are, verse 2, what? They are above reproach. They are above reproach. As I say, this is an umbrella. It's a big umbrella that stretches over this whole passage. Paul is now going to give seven general groups of qualifications. Okay, we won't get them all done tonight, but there are seven general groups of qualifications by which a man is to be measured to determine whether he is above reproach. How do you know whether a man's above reproach? Paul says there is a final exam here that has seven questions, seven general areas in which you need to probe in his life. And and if he passes the exam, then he is above reproach. These seven define what it means. All right, are you ready? First one, we have to examine or we must examine his qualifications regarding his fitness. We have to examine his qualifications regarding his fitness or his suitability, if I can say it that way. His fitness. 
And here they are. First one, the husband of one wife. To be above reproach means he has to be a husband of one wife. Notice, remember the verb day, right? He must be. Paul says this is non-negotiable. He must be a husband of one wife. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you what it means. Historically, there have been four general interpretations of this little phrase, husband of one wife. Generally speaking, four common interpretations. And so we'll go through them together. The first one is that marriage is a requisite. Marriage is a requisite. The first common interpretation of what it means to be a husband of one wife is that, a, that an elder must be married. That's what one interpretation is, basically. That only married men are eligible. Only married men are eligible. Some sort of expand on this a little bit, and they add the notion that he also has to have children. Because as you get down a little bit later in the passage here, it, it talks about, right, managing his own household. So one common interpretation is in order to be qualified or eligible to be above reproach as an elder, and of course it goes down to, um, to deacons as well, in order to qualify here, you have to be married. Now, that might be an appealing interpretation because certainly when a man is married, it, it tempers him, doesn't it? When a man is married, it gives him opportunity to display leadership within his home. It, it, it sort of helps him to grow, I think. And certainly when a man has children, that also tests him, doesn't it? And it, and it helps him to grow in his leadership. And, and so you can see how this interpretation might be an, a desirable understanding of what this phrase means. The only problem with it is it contradicts what Paul says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me show you why I don't believe that that is a proper interpretation. Paul is addressing the issue of marriage over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And one of the hermeneutical principles by which we understand the Scripture is, is that we use the clear statements of Scripture to help us in the statements of Scripture that are perhaps a little more fuzzy. And Paul makes a clear statement here in chapter 7, really beginning here in verse 8. He says, I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Jump down to verse 25 of that same section. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give you an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that it is, that this is a, is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you about, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you should marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, that the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not buy, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please the world. The Apostle Paul is saying, 
in this section that if you're not married, that's great. Then stay single and serve the Lord because you don't have divided interests as a single man or a woman. You, you can give your undivided attention to the Lord. He's saying, if you're married, that's good too. But realize as a married man that you have certain obligations and responsibilities of life that will inhibit your service to God to a certain extent. So he's saying, if you're unmarried, great. If you're married, that's great. But my opinion is, by the way, that times are tough and you're probably better off if you're not married. Like me, the Apostle Paul says. So to go back to 1 Timothy, it appears to me to be somewhat contradictory to something the apostle wrote to another church where he says that if you're single, great, remain in your singleness. It, it seems to me a bit of a contradiction to say then that in order to be a leader in God's church, you have to be married. So I reject the first interpretation that the husband of one wife means that you have to be married. All right, let me give you another interpretation. You have to have one, you can only have one wife in a lifetime. You can only be married to one one woman in your lifetime. So what that means is that if you, if your wife dies and you get married a second time, that you're no longer qualified for eldership. That's another view that certain people hold. And usually what they, the reason they give for this is they say that when you have a second family, you know, you're married the first time, you have a family, and then your, your spouse dies and you get remarried, you, you end up with a second family, and that, that a second family sort of limits your ability to minister in the church. And so they understand this verse as saying, only married once. Only married once, and if you, if you become a, a widower, then you don't remarry, and if you do, you're disqualified. But again, I think that that contradicts a clear statement the Apostle Paul makes over in Romans chapter 7, right? Where over in Romans chapter 7, Paul specifically says, very clearly says, that death does what to a marriage bond? It breaks it. It severs it. And it says that over there that you want to look at it. So just don't believe me. Let's go look at it. This helps you from falling asleep too. Verse 2, chapter 7, Romans. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her, uh, concerning the husband, right? And it says, there we go, verse 3. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the, uh, through the body of Christ, that you may be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. And I can't find the verse that I'm looking for. It says she's free to remarry, but only in the Lord. I hate it when this happens. Well, anyway, it's there. It's there. The Apostle Paul says there in Romans chapter 7 that death severs the marriage bond and that you are free to remarry again, but only in the Lord. So it would appear to me, back to 1 Timothy, it would appear to me that to understand the expression, the husband of one wife, to say that he only can be married once in a lifetime doesn't adequately fit what the Apostle Paul teaches. By the way, he doesn't say here in 1 Timothy 3 that, you, that a man can only have had one wife. He doesn't say that. The Greek does not say that. He doesn't say that an elder can only have been married once. 
If he wanted to say that, he could have said that. The expressions exist to say that, but he doesn't say that. He says the husband of one wife. So those are the first two common, or though maybe a little less common interpretations. And now we get to the biggie that you're all waiting for, right? Number three, no divorce. Okay, this is probably the most controversial understanding of what Paul's talking about here. This is a very common view, and this view prohibits men from leadership in God's church who have been divorced or who have been remarried after divorce or some stretch it out to even say that if they have married a woman who has been divorced, any of those three circumstances that they are disqualified from leadership in God's church. And again, at first glance, that maybe is an appealing interpretation. I mean, divorce is a very serious thing and, and God speaks directly about it, doesn't he, in Malachi. He says in Malachi, with regard to divorce, what? He hates it. He says he hates it. It is never God's desire. It is never God's desire for divorce. So, on first glance, you might think, well, this is a good interpretation. I think this is a good, sound understanding of what he's saying here. It's a good way to safeguard the purity of the church. But the question we have to ask is, is it firmly rooted in the text? Is this really what the expression means, the husband of one wife? Even if it is what it means, it couldn't legitimately exclude a man who remarries after he's divorced. Or let me say that another way. It couldn't, it couldn't legitimately exclude a man who is divorced and not remarried. That's the way I wanted to say it. Because if he is, if he was married and he was divorced and he never marries again, he only had how many wives? One, right? So it, it couldn't exclude a man who is divorced but not remarried. Nor does it say anything about the marital status of his wife, does it? So if this is Paul's statement, it could only be limited to the narrow context of a man who divorces and remarries, if this were true. Secondly, the, the word divorce is not used anywhere in this passage. It does not appear here. There are other passages of Scripture that talk about divorce and talk about the legitimacy or illegitimacy of divorce. So we need to be careful when we interpret 1 Timothy chapter 3 that we don't bring to it understandings of other passages that perhaps aren't being addressed here. I believe that what Paul's talking about is not a man's marital status. I think the issue that the Apostle Paul's getting at runs deeper than a man's marital status. I think the Apostle Paul's talking about being above reproach. He's looking at something deeper and more profound even than a man's marital status. What could that be? Well, let me offer to you what we understand. We, the elders of Foothill Bible Church, understand to be the meaning of this text. And we spent time over several meetings hammering this out together so that we, we were of one mind with regard to the understanding of this text. It begins with a statement that I don't think the husband of one wife is the best interpretation. We don't believe that it is the best interpretation of the Greek. The Greek 
literally says, Mias Gunakas Andra, literally a one-woman man. A one-woman man. And I think if you take that literal interpretation of the Greek, it opens up what Paul's really driving at. Paul is emphasizing character. This passage is all about a man's character. And the question that he's after is, does this man have eyes only for one? Is he faithful to one woman? Is he stable and mature in his character with regard to both his wife and other females in the church? This understanding shifts the emphasis that the apostle's talking about from an event in a man's past and brings it forward to when? Right now. We are examining a man to see whether he might be above reproach. We want to know what he's like right now. Right now in his life. What is his character like? What is the quality of his life? Now, the... Greek, gune, translated here, wife, can also be translated woman. It can be equally translated. The Greek word comes out either way, and in fact, context drives it. It is interpreted woman versus wife almost two to one throughout the New Testament. Secondly, the word translated here, husband, unair, can be translated man or husband. That Greek word can come out either way. It can mean man, it can mean husband. It's about 50-50, translated in the New Testament. The noun here, gunikos, hang with me on this. We're going to talk about grammar for a minute. The noun gunikos is a genitive noun. It's a genitive case noun. Its grammatical role in this clause is to modify the noun aner, or man. Simply put, if I were to put it into English, it says, therefore, an elder must be a man. What kind of man, Paul? A one-woman kind of man. A one-woman kind of man. Mias, one. Gunikos, woman. Ander, man. He must be a one-woman man. What does this mean with regard to divorce? It means that divorce does not automatically disqualify. What it means is that there has to be more questions asked. There has to be a greater investigation, a greater probing of what happened back there. But what it means most importantly is, what is the man's present reputation? What is the present quality and character of his life? Is he committed to this woman? Is he a man that you could point the church to and say, you want to know how you're supposed to love your wife? Take a look at this elder. He is a one Woman, man. Next, he must be temperate. He must be temperate, the apostle says. 
The word temperate originally meant moderate in the use of wine. But metaphorically, it sort of changed over time and it kind of took on the idea of sober-mindedness or sound judgment. He must be tempered. He must have sound judgment. He must have, I think in a word, wisdom. He must have wisdom. He must be a, a man of wisdom, a man who, who's the Word of God has so infiltrated his heart and mind that, he, that he's able to bring it to bear on a situation. And You can easily see how critical that would be for someone in leadership in God's church, wouldn't it? When, it, when the problems come, when the decisions have to be made, where do the leaders in God's church have to go for direction and for guidance? They have to go to the Word of God, don't they? And so if they are men whose lives are saturated with the Word of God, they are sober-minded about life, they are sound in their judgment, they exhibit biblical wisdom, they are, in a word, temperate. They are temperate. Next, Paul says, they are prudent. They are prudent. The word is thoughtful. To translate it, thoughtful. They are thoughtful men. They are men who do not go off half-cocked. Men who only get sort of half the story and then run with it. The Proverbs say in Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 17, boy, if there's a proverb you ought to memorize as an elder, this is one. The first to plead his case seems just until another comes and examines him. What is that? There are two sides to every story. Okay, that's in, that's in layman's English, or as my mother used to say when I was young, it takes two to tango. Have you ever heard that before? There's always two sides to every story. And so an elder has to be a thoughtful man, a man who doesn't run off when he hears just half the story, but is waits, disciplines himself, investigates, finds out the whole story, the whole truth, that he can bring the Word of God to bear on it. Next, he has to be respectable. The idea is well-behaved. He has to be disciplined in his life. He has to be a respectable man. So the first area of examination in an elder's life is his fitness or his suitability in these general areas. He has to be above reproach in these things. Second, he has to have certain qualifications regarding his facility or his aptitude. Certain qualifications regarding his facility or his aptitude. Let's look at him here in verse 2. He has to be what? What does it say? He has to be hospitable. He has to be hospitable. Philozenos is the Greek word. Literally a lover of strangers. Philo, love. Zenos, strangers. You've all heard of xenophobia, right? Fear of strangers. It has to be just the opposite of that. He has to be a lover of strangers. This, by the way, believers or brothers, is, brothers and sisters, brethren, is a requirement for all of us. Too many times you hear people say, well, I don't have the gift of hospitality. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't get off the hook that easily. There are no spiritual gifts of hospitality. There are only imperatives of hospitality, commands of hospitality. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Does that sound like a spiritual gift to you? It sounds like an imperative to me. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Sounds to me like another imperative. Romans chapter 12 and verse 13. 
These are the things you must be. You must be contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. It is a requirement of the Christian life. Christians are to love strangers. We are to love those who are outside the family. So as an elder, as an overseer, as a leader in the church of God, this should be a characteristic of your life, right? This should be something that you are modeling to the rest of the community of believers. When people look and say, well, what does it mean to be hospitable? They should be able to look at the life of an elder in the church and say, they're hospitable. Okay, now I get it. I'll just do like they do. Hospitality is helping strangers feel like a part of the family. If you're looking for a definition, here it is. Hospitality is helping strangers feel like they are a part of the family. It is more than just having a meal together. Having someone over in your home for dinner, in and of itself, is not a definition of hospitality. Hospitality is more than that. But it's not less than that either. Family. It might mean having them into your home to get to know them better so that you might introduce them to others in the family better. Simple suggestion. Perhaps invite them in your home for dinner and invite another family too. And then you can help them get to know each other. Hospitality is knowing and doing the one another's of Scripture. So with regard to an elder's facility or his aptitude, he has to be hospitable. Finally, verse 2, he has to be what? Able to teach. Didacticos. Skillful at teaching. He has to be skillful at teaching. The ability to teach is associated with the task of an overseer or an elder. They go together. They define him to a certain degree. They separate him clearly from the ministry of the deacon. He has to be able to teach. And I think implied in the word or in the phrase able to teach is the idea that he has to be able to learn too, right? You can't teach what you don't, what you don't learn, what you don't know. Elders are men of the word. Men of the word. That's what separates them from the ministry of the deacons. Remember Acts chapter 6? What do the apostles say in Acts chapter 6? Right? They say it's not good for us to neglect the, the ministry of the word for the serving of the tables. So they appoint certain people to help in that process. We're going to look at that passage in, in excruciating detail in the weeks to come. But the point of the matter was that the elders or the apostles acting as first elders in the churches recognize the ministry of the word and its importance and the ministry of prayer. And so in order to be able to give themselves to it, they needed help. Elders have to be men of the word. Part of what they aspire to do, verse 1, if any man aspires to the office of what? Overseer. Part of the aspiring is an aspiring to the task of preaching or teaching. Slip of the tongue, sorry. It's an aspiration to teach. It's an aspiration to study. Elders have to know how to handle the word of God. Excuse me, the word of God. They have to teach sound doctrine. The pastoral epistles are loaded with that phrase, sound doctrine. Why do the elders have to be able to teach? What's, what's the big deal about teaching? What's the, why is it so important? Well, I think I can give you three reasons very quickly. You ready? Number one, they have to instruct the new converts. That makes sense, doesn't it? 
Somebody has to instruct the new converts in the faith. The task falls to the teachers of the church, the elders. Second, they have to build up the saints. Go with me to Titus chapter 1, a parallel passage. And by the way, we're going to, we're going to look at Titus chapter 1. Those of you who are wondering, we'll look at Titus 1, 6 through 9 in conjunction with 1 Timothy 3 because they overlap in a lot of ways. Elders have to be able to teach, or the old King James, apt to teach, because they have to build up the saints. Look at verse 9. An elder is holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine. Stop right there. He has to be able to exhort in sound doctrine. He has to be able to build up the church. That means that he has to have something to build it up with. In order to be able to teach, you've got to have something to teach. In order to have something to teach, you have to study. Not just a little bit. We're not talking about just, you know, 15 minutes with God in the morning. I better stop right there. I'll get myself in trouble. We're talking about serious study of the Word of God. We're talking about hard work. We're talking about managing our lives and ordering our priorities to the point where we have time for hours of serious study of the Word of God so we can build up the church. So we can build up the church. And third, so we can refute heretics. Verse 9, right? So they may be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced. There are people that have to be silenced. There are enemies of the church of God that have to be put down. They have to be defeated. There is a spiritual war that is going on. And somebody better know how to properly wield the sword of the Spirit. Falls to the ministry of the overseers, ministry of the elders. They are to feed, they are to lead, they are to protect, they are to edify. When the wolves come, they're to beat them off. Well, in order to be able to refute a heresy, you have no way, you have no why it's a heresy. Isn't that right? And heretics don't come to you with signs on their forehead that flash that say heretic, heretic, heretic. False teachers are subtle. They masquerade as angels of light. Apostle Paul says, little wonder, because that's what Satan himself did. Right? Just about a week and a half ago or so, there were some Mormons that came to my door. Knocked on my door. Of course, I knew who they were. Didn't have a sign that said heretic, but they were dressed in a certain way that said heretic. But anyway, they came to my door, and I opened the door, and they started talking. I stopped them, and I said, I have just one question for you. Who is Jesus Christ? And they gave me the most orthodox answer, probably a more orthodox answer than some people at Foothill Bible Church could give me. And I stopped them, and I said, you are deceived and deceiving, and this conversation is over. Nothing more to talk about. And I closed the door. Because they are liars. They are deceivers. They are slaughterers of men's souls. 
And see, if, if I had just taken their words that sounded orthodox without knowing anything about them, it would have been easy to be taken in. There was a church, I was told, here just a few weeks ago in this area that invited some Mormons to come and speak in the church to, I guess, improve dialogue between the Christians and the Mormons. You've got to be ashamed of such things to allow the agents of Satan to come into the household of God. The elders have to protect the church. They have to beat off the heretics. And having been instructed in the faith, they have to be able to fulfill Paul's instructions in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Elders have to be able to reproduce themselves. Now, let's bring some bring some boundaries to this, okay? The ability to teach does not mean that every single elder possesses the ability to address a large crowd of people in the conventions of 20th century or 21st century oratory. What am I trying to say? The ability to teach doesn't mean that everybody can stand up in front of a congregation of hundreds of people and preach. That's not what it means. I mean, think about it this way. In the first century, most churches were house churches, right? They met in people's homes. And so the elders that were teaching in the churches were teaching in smaller groups in homes, something more akin to a home Bible study. So there, the ability to teach kind of has all sorts of dimensions. It can, it can be the ability to address a large crowd. It can be the ability... To handle a small group, it can be as simple as one-on-one. -on -one. But whatever form it takes, an elder has to be a man of the word who can communicate the truth to instruct the new converts, to, to build up or edify the saints, and to refute the heretics. Those are the things that he must be able to do. Now, I think, according to Ephesians 4.11 and 1 Timothy 5.17, you can turn there and look at that real quick if you'd like. I think based on those two verses that there are some elders that are more skillful teachers than others. I think the scripture indicates that, and I think certainly life experience bears it out. Paul says there in 1 Timothy 5.17, let, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. There seems to be a, a giftedness that is in greater measure among some men than others. All elders have to be able to teach. Some are more gifted teachers than others. I think that's what the scripture would have us understand. Well, we made it through two qualifications. There are seven. First, fitness, suitability. He has to be examined, a man has to be examined with regard to his fitness for the position. Secondly, he has to be examined with regard to his facility or his aptitude for the position. And you have to come back next week to get the five remaining parts of the exam. And you all know if it's a seven-question exam and you only answer two of the questions, what's going to happen to you? You're going to flunk. 
okay? So come back next week and let's get the rest of it. Let me pray. Our Father God, the standards are high, but they are not unattainable. The scriptures are clear and unequivocal. The Lord God, a man who would lead in your church must be above reproach. But by your grace and the work of your spirit in a man's life and his careful attention to detail and application of the scriptures to his life, he can qualify. And if you put there, Father, the aspiration to serve in this way, he'll be effective. Lord God, help us, those of us who are leaders here at Foothill, to seriously evaluate ourselves versus these qualifications. Let us look into the mirror of the Word of God and see a true and clear reflection of ourselves. And Lord God, those places where we need to shore it up, where we need to, to work harder, give us faith to do so. And Lord God, those among us who are perhaps even wrestling now with thoughts of aspiration in this area, may you confirm or deny it in their lives. For Lord God, the leadership of your church is a joyous thing if you have placed us here. We thank you for the scriptures that they leave us a clear direction. In Jesus' name, amen.